0: Some problems are problems from hell, And this is one of them. This is one of them.
1: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Journalists Thomas Friedman and Evan Osnos weigh in on the situation in North Korea. Known as the land of lousy options, North Korea has posed problems for the US for decades. But now, the country is testing its missiles regularly, and the situation is increasingly dire. What are the best solutions for dealing with this escalating crisis? Aspen Ideas to Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Since February of 2017, North Korea has been testing a missile about every two weeks. On July 4th, the country tested its first intercontinental ballistic missile, claiming it could reach anywhere in the world. CNN reports, in less than six years, North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un has tested more missiles than his father and grandfather combined. In this episode, speakers at the Aspen Ideas Festival work to demystify the North Korea subject, cut through the rhetoric, and examine what solutions are possible. Elizabeth Economy is Director of Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She joins Fareed Zakaria, who hosts CNN's Fareed Zakaria GPS. Thomas Friedman is also on the panel. He's a foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times. He's been covering North Korea since the mid-90s. The conversation is led by Evan Osnos, a staff writer for The New Yorker. He was the magazine's China correspondent from 2008 to 2013. Their conversation happened on June 30th, before North Korea launched its intercontinental ballistic missile. Here's Osnos.
2: This is an astonishing group that I am seated beside tonight. I have to tell you, the idea that we got these three people, who are in so much demand, usually on disparate continents, uh, that we got them in one place at one time is a sort of cosmic event, a rare moment, like one of those uh, eclipses, you know, where it happens once every 75 years, yes. Don't look straight at it, actually, it's an eclipse. It'll, it'll burn your corneas right out. So, um, Fareed, the president has said, uh, and his uh, proxies have said, Rex Tillerson and others, that all options are on the table when it comes to North Korea. To those of us who remember this issue from when Madeleine Albright was dealing with it, North Korea is known in diplomatic circles as the land of lousy options, right? So what are the options? Let's actually talk through what are the options available to the United States and um, what do you think is realistic?
3: Thanks, Evan. It's, it's a huge pleasure to be with, uh, with, with uh, on this panel um, and it's a huge pleasure to be able to, to talk about this set of presidential tweets as opposed to the others that were, were made over the last 24 hours. Um, I, I think that... I remember, it's funny you talk about 1994 as Tom's first column on North Korea. I remember talking to a uh, Clinton administration official about North Korea ab- about that time, maybe 93 or n- early 94. And they said, look, here's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to sanction the regime to make them feel the cost of, uh, of the path to, uh, to, uh, to going nuclear. We're going to try to work with the Chinese. And at the end of the day, we're trying to keep them in a box because, let's face it, this crazy, bizarre regime that so oppresses its own people, it's not gonna be around five years from now. And that was, you know, about 30 years ago. So um, that has been, in many ways, the understated policy of the United States, that this crazy regime can't possibly last, so let's just do enough to get by, and eventually it'll collapse, and then we'll have some kind of more normal situation we could deal with, and of course, That has not worked out. And I think it's fair to say that 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 policy uh, was premised essentially on a a mistaken assumption, and we'll get into this later, I think, on the stability of the the North Korean regime. I happen to think it is more stable and less irrational than people think. If you think about regime preservation, and you ask yourself how many regimes in the world have been able to be around and pass from grandfather to son to grandson over the last 60 years, there ain't a lot, right? The, the Assad's tried, didn't work. I mean, if you can find me places where it has, it, you know, Castro might have, might, may or may not have tried, it didn't work. There are not a lot of places that managed it. So what are the options going forward? The president now says the era of strategic patience is over. I remember when I was studying international relations, uh, Tom Schelling, a professor at Harvard, had a great line where he would say there are two things that are very expensive in international relations. Threats when they fail, and promises when they succeed. So be very careful when you make a threat or you make a promise. And what I worry about with the president, he is essentially making a threat. And this is the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, is saying, we're gonna do something. Just wait and see, we're gonna do something. We've stopped, you know, our patience has worn thin. The Secretary of State says the same thing. And you have to ask yourself, what are they thinking? Have they thought this through? Have they looked at, you know, carefully at what are the options are? Because here are the options. The military option is highly, highly unattractive. I mean, if you thought the Iraq war was tough, welcome to the Second Korean War, right? You have an arm to the teeth uh, adversary in North Korea. Uh, and the most important thing they have is they can hold Seoul hostage. The city of Seoul is miles from the, the uh, border. Uh, it is well within range of it. Virtually every kind of rocket missile they have, even, even some artillery fire, um, and that's where most of South Korea lives. So you would be talking about an intensely uh, complicated, intense ca- uh, you know, n- number of casualties, uh, a battle that the South Koreans, with the help of the United States, would certainly win, but it would be extremely bloody, and of course I haven't brought up the fact that North Korea has a bunch of nuclear weapons. And when you, you know, we don't know what would happen if they felt they were losing the conventional war, which they would almost certainly be doing. So all in all, a highly unattractive option. Very hard to, to hit them with targeted missile strikes because the, uh, the, the nuclear facilities are designed to be protected in various ways. They're, they're buried deep, they're hidden, they're scattered. So very, very hard to do. Um, then you say, okay, well, we should sanction them. and there's some. There's an argument here that says you you hear often that North Korea is the most sanctioned country in the world. It's actually not true. The UN sanctions against Iran were much tougher, and if you went down that route, you'd be able to do something. Here's the problem with it. The argument only works because North Korea really does business with one country. 85% of North Korea's trade is with China. It provides something like 90% of its fuel and 50% of its food. So you've got to get China to do it. And here's the problem. The way the United States views this, it's a very simple preference ordering. If you did kind of game theory, this is what it would look like. You know, preference number one, no nuclear North Korea. Preference number two, no instability on the Korean subcontinent. For the Chinese, the preference ordering is exactly the reverse. It is no instability, and secondly, yeah, we'd we'd like there to be no nukes, and I think that's genuine. And here's why. If you're China, just look at it from China's perspective, and then I, I'll uh, let everyone else jump in. If you're China, and you push North Korea as hard as the President uh, of the United States has been asking you to do for 25 years, uh, there is a real danger the regime collapses. It, it subsists on nothing but Chinese aid in some, at some very real level. And then here's what happens. The North Korean regime implodes you maybe get two million refugees moving to China. That's not as important. You end up with a collapsed North Korea, which then has to unify with South Korea on South Korean terms, very much like the Germanys, except that North Korea is much larger and much poorer than East Germany was. And so it would be a monumental challenge, but it would happen, and what you would end up with from a Chinese perspective, on its border, on a very crucial border, is a very large Korea Unified, ruled under the South Korean model, a treaty ally of the United States with a defense treaty with the United States, 30,000 American troops in the Unified Korea, in other words, on China's border, and eight nuclear weapons. Now, that's not an entirely enticing prospect to the Chinese. So you can understand why they say, you know, we get your preference ordering, but that's not ours. They, you know, aren't polite. They aren't. Uh, they don't say that directly, but. That's the nub of the problem, that the two countries that have the most at stake here have a different set of preference order.
1: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. This episode focuses on North Korea, the most difficult foreign policy problem today. The conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 30th. It features journalists Fareed Zakaria, Thomas Friedman, and Evan Osnos. Elizabeth Economy of the Council on Foreign Relations is also on the panel. Here's more of their discussion.
2: Tom, You are, I think of the four of us just back most recently from South Korea, from China, uh, you were all over the region, and I want to actually read something that Tom wrote while you were there. You wrote, it would not be an exaggeration to say that Washington fears North Korea more than ever, while China and South Korea fear a unilateral US strike on North Korea more than ever. How does it feel in the region?
0: Um, well, I, I share everything that Fareed said, um, Kim, Jong-un, uh, Kim Jong-un negotiating with Donald Trump. What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what could go wrong um, if you're not worried um, so I, I came back with several impressions it was very helpful Evan to go there uh, as it always is if you don't go you don't know and the first overwhelming impression I had was I met with about 20 college students at, the, at an institute there I just sat down in the middle of them and say, what do you think about what's going on and um, the overwhelming sentiments were twofold. One is, they're more afraid of Donald Trump than they are Kim Jong Un, um, and uh, and they said that explicitly. Um, now it's partly you have to understand the context of societies long at war, and that is they have lived with this threat for a long time, and they've actually lived with it. Unlike us, who have, go to strategic seminars, you know, at institutes, they've actually lived with it every day. And one of the things I'd learned in Beirut, and I had a deja vu there, which I literally said to them, when actually our bureau chief there was telling me that young people today actually, um, uh, when the price is right, love to move just south of the demilitarized zone because hmm. the property prices are a little lower there, and they've already gamed out the rockets will go over their head, okay? <laughs> um, practical. And, uh, very practical. This, in, in my son, this, is, this is absolutely true. And... Um, when you're long at war, and we're talking six, that's what you do because the, the, the war never comes and you start to game it. Um, and I literally said to them, it reminded me of the hostess in Beirut who said um, uh, during a conflict, would you like to eat now or wait for the ceasefire, okay? <laughs> so you, you, you just make all these adjustments that when you're over here and just looking at the missiles and the numbers and the ratios, you forget those people are living a life and they've lived this life for six decades. So um, uh, the idea that now everything has to stop because this guy can threaten Los Angeles or Guam, it it doesn't really, um, uh, and their view is, as Farid said, the last thing they want, and these young people made this very clear, is the burden of rebuilding North Korea. Um, And they also have a lot of confidence in their own army. So that was sort of one overriding um, impression. Another is that the ideal solution, I think, for all three parties, if you could think of this Rubik's Cube, is there something that China and and America and South Korea could agree on in Japan? Um, It would be uh, getting rid of Kim Jong-un, okay, Um, and in effect the dynasty, if you could somehow do this, but keeping actually the regime broadly there and the state intact. Because they do neither, neither the South nor the Chinese, it's where they have very much in common, want the burden of rebuilding a collapsed North Korea. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, Kim Jong-un has figured that out. And that's why, he, who, did he, who did he wipe out? He wiped out his uncle um, and his half-brother uh, when they smeared uh, toxin on his face in a Malaysian airport. Um, because uh, those are the two most pro-Chinese people around him. So he did the math, and he understood the perfect solution was for him to disappear. And he took out the two people that um, uh, were most likely to do that. So then that takes you to the third tier. If the ideal is not possible, you know, then what is possible and what, what is in our interest? And you know, as Fareed said, I mean, China... Um, North Korea imports 95% of its oil from China. In other words, China could turn their economy off overnight. And China has not done that. And it's not going to do that. You know. um, now, I think below that, I would guess, because the Chinese have stopped buying North Korea's coal, and that's a big loss of import income for them. But I, I would bet the Chinese have told Kim Jong un um, no more nuclear tests. Um, You want to test, you know, pop off your missiles, you know, go ahead. But um, they also don't want him to provoke, you know, the United States. I would imagine there's a discussion going on there. How effective or sustainable, I don't really know. So, um, uh, but the Chinese also, let's be very clear, uh, they have a soft economic boycott on South Korea going right now. Right. Okay, because the South Koreans accepted the uh, American THAAD anti-missile system, um, and uh, that missile system has a range that covers part of China's airspace, and the Chinese have told them if you you don't turn that thing on um, and uh, and what they've done is basically shut off all Chinese tourism to South Korea. That is a big deal and they've also been harassing Korean companies in China. So where does that leave us? What it leaves me thinking is that the uh, the only The solution to me is is really twofold. One is that um, if you read our uh, story in the New York Times a couple of months ago by my colleague David Sanger and and, and others, if you read between the lines of that article, I'm not saying this, I'm just saying if you read between the lines of that article, (laughs) you would see that um, uh, the United States has managed to... um, Uh, 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 de-encrypt North Korea's missiles, and we're making them all blow up in mid-air or go into the sea. That's why all these tests are failing. Now, what they do is they let some of them go through and some of them not, so the North Koreans are never sure what we've got. And I think that is the best way forward, Uh, that that using these cyber tactics or whatnot, keeping them at bay, um, and that's why I, I ended the article, that column I did from there, by retelling the medieval parable of the criminal who is brought before the king for murder, and the king is about to sentence him to death, and he tells the king, Your Highness, if you spare my life, I promise I could teach your horse to sing. And, um, and the king thought about it for a while, and he said, What the hell? I'll give you a year. And he goes back to his cell, and his cellmate says... What happened? He said, I promised I would teach the king's horse to sing. And his cellmate said, You can't possibly do that. And the guy said, I know, but I've got a year now. And in that year, I might die, the king might die, the horse might sing. Okay? And, um, and I think we're basically waiting. I'd much rather bet on the horse singing than Donald Trump
2: going to war with North Korea. All right, I like it. So, so, so the, the theory. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's compelling. The theory yeah. of the singing horse. I, just, will, I will take wait. that with me. Keep
0: taking our cyber action against them, keeping them at bay. Um, and I think there's just no... Some problems are problems from hell. And this is one of them. This is one
1: of them. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. During the week of the Aspen Ideas Festival, a group of journalists took over our podcast. Michelle Norris... Susan Page, Joshua Johnson, Perry Peltz, Julie Robner, and Pete Dominic sat down with festival presenters to talk about their work. Find these special episodes on iTunes. There, you can subscribe to Aspen Ideas to Go so you'll never miss another episode. Now back to the show. Fareed Zakaria, Thomas Friedman, Elizabeth Economy, and Evan Osnos are discussing North Korea. Here's Osnos.
2: Liz, you uh, have heard many times over, people are constantly asking you about what China is going to do. How is China going to handle this? China is is described by the president in somewhat mixed terms, though. If we remind ourselves, he for a long time described it as the indispensable piece of the puzzle. He said, it's your problem, solve it. And if you solve it, maybe our own relationship will get better. And then recently, he sent out a cryptic message that said, it seems they've tried and they didn't succeed. (laughs) but at least I know they tried. Right. So Liz, would you please explain Donald Trump and China's intentions? <laughs> yes, in. yes, yes.
4: Let, let, me, let me do the easy one, which is Chinese in, intentions. Um, so I think, um, you know, Farid set out sort of the, the nub of the problem well, which is that we have different priorities, right? And that China's priority is stability and secondarily denuclearization and ours is denuclearization and then stability, we're not so concerned about because it doesn't really affect us. Um, But I think if you look at at the situation that China finds itself in right now with North Korea, what's interesting is that um, economically, trade has rebounded. So China may be on track to having uh, the best trade year with North Korea that it's had since its peak in 2014, which is somewhat startling. And yes, while they stopped the coal uh, imports from North Korea in February, March, uh, they had already paid up to the full amount So there's a little bit of sneakiness that went on there. Um, So they were able to say, okay, we've stopped early, but they inflated the price that they were paying to the North Koreans. Um, So that raises – so that's the the economic side, which seems to be moving ahead full steam. Uh, So 37.5% increase uh, in trade uh, in the first quarter of this year over the previous year. Uh, Politically, though, uh, Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping have yet to meet. So in the five years that Xi Jinping has, almost five years, uh, has been General Secretary of the Communist Party, they haven't met yet. Uh, And if you look at uh, Kim Jong-un's father, he met with Hu Jintao seven times over the course of of the 2000s. So the political relationship is in a pretty deep freeze. So you might be right, Tom, that the Chinese are messaging the North Koreans. I'm not so sure that they've got that, that connection because even at a secondary level... Uh, they're averaging something like one and a quarter meetings per year at the level of foreign minister or below. So it's the political relationship is incredibly strained uh, between North Korea and China. So what can the Chinese do? Uh, well, number one, they could actually implement the UN sanctions that they've signed on to. Right? So that would be one, one really good thing to do. Um, and there have been six sets of sanctions since 2006. And The U.S. maintains a list of all the different Chinese companies and people uh, and entities uh, that they've identified, uh, that we've identified, that, that are not adhering to the sanctions. And over the past few years, they've given this list to the Chinese and said, can you do a better job? Can you do a better job? And then they pretty much haven't done much of a better job. And that's why, as Evan mentioned at the outset, uh, today we announced these, or yesterday we announced these secondary sanctions on uh, I think it's a Chinese shipping company, yeah, the Chinese a bank, shipping company and a bank uh, that are clearly not enforcing uh, implementing the sanctions. Um, so one thing they could do is implement sanctions. They could also turn the screws you know, uh, more on the Chinese economy. But as we've heard, they're not going to do that because they're not interested uh, in having uh, you know, North Korea uh, in any way have some sort of instability and implode. I would say that uh, there is a big debate going on in China. Uh, And and that debate is around, uh, you know, how much should we be supporting North Korea? And this debate's been going on for probably five years or so. And it's really reached a pretty fevered pitch right now so that you will have, for the first time since I've been following this issue, uh, scholars and foreign policy analysts saying publicly you know, we should think about regime change in North Korea. That's not something you're going to get the Chinese government to acknowledge, but you can definitely find people, senior scholars and foreign policy people, talking about uh, regime change. Uh, There is no love for Kim Jong-un in China. Uh, People will say we should be on the right side of history. You know, North Korea is a millstone around our neck. You know, we give and give and give. uh, And, you know, what do they give in return? Uh, and I'll just make one last point, which is, you know, if you look just, I guess it was May, early May, when China held that huge uh, Belt and Road uh, conference uh, in Beijing, uh, how did, what did North Korea do? They chose that moment to launch a missile, right, from the, the closest point on the border between China and North Korea. So they launched it from right, you know, right near China, and then they launched it uh, so that it landed uh, just south of Vladivostok, right? So right in between the time that Xi Jinping and Putin are speaking, they launched a missile that was tied to both of their most important patrons. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, Kim Jong-un is not giving anything uh, to the Chinese uh, for any sort of, you know, Chinese protection of North Korea. And there are a lot of people within the analytical community yeah. in China that recognize that.
2: Well and also I would say in the u s side I've been talking to members of the intelligence community who will say we used to think that the Chinese had better visibility on what's going on in Pyongyang than we do. We no longer think that that's a powerful point so,
3: so let me suggest um, you know we're, we're in an odd situation where we, i think we all agree with each other yeah, but, we're in dangerous but this is alignment a, this is a complicated issue so let me, let me try to um let me try to suggest uh that maybe we have been conceiving of the of the of the whole problem uh you know, incorrectly in the sense that the basic uh, way we look at this is this guy is crazy, this regime is crazy, Um, you know, this is the madman theory, so we've got to get uh, rid of these nukes and we can't negotiate with them because they're crazy, right? Um, And so what I'm wondering is, I wonder if really this is, as I said, a very stable, rational regime that has as its number one priority regime survival and at that, they have been extremely successful. And they've managed it in the course of the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Soviet Empire, the Arab Spring, the Orange Revolutions, everything. Now, you can say, if you're that repressive, maybe you can do it. It's still pretty darn impressive from the point of view of their number one priority, which has been re- regime survival. And one of the reasons they've been able to do it, I think, is exactly the point Tom made, which is, they understand how disruptive this collapse would be to the South Koreans, to the Chinese. They understand that as a result, they're sort of like the you know the guy in in the crowded room who is who has a bomb. You know he can explode it and kill everyone. So, as a result of that, they are able to engage in these kind of provocations, which are actually not as provocative as they seem because they know that at the end of the day, it's going to be very hard to do it. So what? Where does that leave me thinking? It leaves me thinking what they want more than anything else is regime survival. What we want more than anything else is to get rid of the nukes. Why not try to go down a path that says, we're going to keep pressure on you, and I'll get to that in a second, but we are also willing to engage in negotiations because what they want is an end to the Korean War. By the way, there has never been a formal end to the Korean War. The United States is still technically at war with North North Korea in their view. And so they want essentially into the war, recognition by the the United States, and in a sense normalization of their status so that they are not viewed as this bizarre oddity that is going to collapse and that we are just waiting to push over the edge, but a normal country that has the ability to conduct diplomatic relations. I'm not saying we should get there, but I'm saying is it conceivable that there is a way to engage in negotiations with them to get what we want, which is to get the nukes out. Now, the pressure piece you would have to do is to get more, the Chinese to be willing to do more. And there, I wonder if there is a, a path where you could, ha- could you have a real strategic dialogue with the Chinese at a very high level and say, look, here's the deal. We do want you guys to get much, more, much tougher. And exactly the way that Liz said, um, probably they will never really t- turn the fuel off because they, they would worry too much about uh, regime collapse. The Chinese are very pro-stability. I mean, you know, if, but throughout all these, these Arab springs and orange, River, that has been their driving force if you look at their UN votes and things. But you could get them maybe to implement the sanctions that exist if you make a deal with them and say, look, if there were an implosion of the regime, we would withdraw our 30,000 troops from South Korea um, and we would jointly denuclearize the Korean uh, peninsula. And you maybe have to talk about something about the nature of the US new Korean Treaty alliance. You don't need the troops in, in South Korea if North Korea is gone. Frankly, it's not even clear what the troops are doing there now because the South Korean army, in, in a conventional sense, can easily, uh, you know, as I say, it be costly, but can easily defeat the North. We, we need to provide the South with a nuclear guarantee. You don't need troops to do that. So if you were to have a conversation with the, with the, with the Chinese about what a post North Korean Korea would look like, and it was something that the Chinese felt they could live with. Maybe they'd be willing to put the pressure, and maybe, you know, as in any negotiation, you have to think about the carrots as well as the sticks, and you have to ask yourself what this all looks like from North Korea's perspective. Remember, if you're North Korea, if you're the guys running North Korea, it's a pretty tough situation, right? You've got uh, the world's most powerful country uh, basically gunning for you, if you weren't absolutely sure about that, after being attacked by Islamic terrorists who came from Saudi Arabia, George Bush put them on the axis of evil, right? So, so, so all of a sudden, as part of the war against terror, you know, they were just like, we're gonna go after Islamic terrorism, and by the way, North Korea as well. So this, you know, this is not conducive to enormous sense of security. And if you feel highly insecure, and then China's support is waning in exactly the way that Liz pointed out. If you're insecure, in the world of international relations, you buy insurance, and insurance is nuclear weapons. So I wonder, if they were more secure, would they be willing to give the nukes up? Uh, just
0: to pick up on, on Fareed's point, I think it's a, you know, it's a very important point. The question is, is there an overlap between Kim Jong-un's bottom line and Donald Trump's? Because Donald Trump will never sign a deal that will allow Kim Jong-un to keep even a single nuclear weapon. We can pretty much presume that. Will Kim Jong-un ever sign a deal that would abandon all his nukes for promises in a post-Libya world? Because someday I'm going to write a book about how absolutely stupid the Libyan invasion was and its global implications. Okay, We first of all uncorked Africa and created an opening for mass migration, now about 10,000 a month, from the Sahel into Europe, which is actually creating the immigration problem in Europe. It is not an Arab problem. It is an African problem. And that is because we uncorked Libya and didn't create a stable environment afterwards. And at the same time, we told Gaddafi, give up your weapons, and we assure you, you'll be fine. Your regime will be safe. And Kim Jong-un saw that, and he said, no way, no how. So I agree with you. We should we should explore that. I think it's the only diplomatic way. The question I have is: Is there any? Would he actually go to zero? Um, this is a guy who he's heading for as many nuclear weapons as Great Britain in an economy the size of Akron, Ohio. So he's he's made a pretty big bet. Uh, seriously,
3: yeah,
0: uh, uh, two billion dollar year economy, I believe. And so, and I have a third question: Does China? Do they kind of enjoy, oh, President Trump, yeah, we're going to work on that for you. Oh, those trade sanctions you're talking about on us. uh, Ah, we're having a little problem getting through to North. I think the Chinese have got Trump's number. They understand they can use this North Korea problem to offset his trade pressure. And it's not clear to me they want to be part of a stable solution here. Because, again, I go back to people there. They've lived with this for 60 years.
4: I'm not. I'm not sure I agree there. I think the Chinese do want a stable solution. Um, then they've happened, got. They've why got. Some, they've... Well, they've got a proposal on the table. I mean, their proposal is basically that the United States and South Korea stop all their military exercises. Right? We get rid of that. <laughs> um, that then the um, North Koreans uh, freeze all missile tests and certainly all nuclear tests. Uh, then we sit down at the table <laughs> and we arrive at a peace treaty. Uh, and the peace treaty—it's unclear. So, in, in one version of the peace treaty, it, uh, North Korea gets to keep the nuclear weapons, right? But they freeze, they cap. Yeah. Uh, in the other version, they don't get to keep them, uh, and you've got a you know gradual uh, diminution. In no scenario that I've seen, though, Reid, and I think so. This is, I think, what successive U.S. administrations have wanted, which is exactly what you've said—to be able to sit down with the Chinese and talk about what would a, a post. Kim Jong-un kind of regime look like, well, you know, the Chinese don't want to have that discussion. So far, uh, they haven't wanted to have that discussion. Um, You know, I'm not convinced that uh, the Chinese, as of this moment, feel like they've got Trump's number. I think Trump threw them for a loop uh, today, not only with the secondary sanctions, but also with the arms sales to Taiwan. I think it was a very unpleasant surprise for the Chinese.
0: Doubly so, why then? I think they'd like to keep some reserve reserve levers on you well
3: the chinese i think yeah. are approaching uh, when i look at the chinese the way they were they were approaching the trump uh, uh, administration it reminds me very much of the way that uh, they they handle a lot of other countries so if you look and remember trump started uh, saying he was going to recognize taiwan and the chinese absolutely froze all contact with uh, with the trump administration so much so that tillerson had to go into the white house and tell the president you know, we just can't get our calls returned, literally, Um, you have to affirm the one-China policy. So Trump agrees to have that call with Xi Jinping in which he affirms the one-China policy. Two days later, I believe, the Chinese approved 35 trademarks for Trump organization products in China. Then he comes to Mar-a-Lago and meets Trump's daughter and son-in-law, and that day they approve another 15 trademarks for Ivanka Trump, beauty products, spa services, things like that. A Chinese friend of mine who's not in the government said, this is how we've always dealt with governments. It's just been African governments. Now Now we're doing that with the United States.
1: Today's conversation was held on stage at the 2017 Aspen Ideas Festival in late June. It features CNN host Fareed Zakaria, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman, New Yorker staff writer Evan Osnos, and Elizabeth Economy. She's with the Council on Foreign Relations. Over the next two months, we're featuring bonus episodes that capture compelling and relevant conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival stage. Our next show is What We've Learned from Listening to America. Watch for it later this week. Back to our feature discussion on North Korea. Here's Evan Osnos.
2: One of the things that's coming out of the relative vantage points is the idea that we have to begin to look at North Korea as it is today rather than what it is that we want it to be. To remind ourselves, North Korea today has between 12 and 20 usable nuclear weapons. It's trying, as Tom said, to get to 100 nuclear weapons by 2020. Let's talk about, however, what might be an unwelcome thought, which is the idea that we might find ourselves living with that situation. At the height of the Cold War, the Soviet Union had 20,000 nuclear weapons. Could we live with a North Korea that retains some of its nuclear arsenal? And what would that look like? I mean, is deterrence? <laughs> let's put it. Let's put it in the terms. Let's put it in the terms that we used in the Cold War, when we did have a nuclear-armed adversary, somebody that we didn't trust. We talked about mutually assured destruction. We talked about deterrence. We came up with a legal framework, a strategic framework that allowed them to understand that if they used this weapon, that would be the end of them. But we didn't seek to use our own weapons in order to provoke a conflict. Is that where we're headed? You know, I would just
0: say it's only a guess. We don't know, but really. You and Liz, Fried and I in different ways have made the point, which is that this is a regime that's been very successful at survival. It is anything but a suicidal regime. This is a dynasty that's now gone through three generations. Would I want to count on that? Of course not. You know, it's highly unstable. But in, the again, the list of bad options, I, I'm for waiting for the horse to sing. <laughs>
3: So if you look at, if you yeah. look at um, you know, Mao's China, forget the Soviet Union, at the peak, I and mean, you and Liz know this much better than I do, but at the, in the 50s, or you know, maybe um, early 60s, Mao was really crazy in what he would say. Yeah. He talked about welcoming a nuclear war, because he said, well look, there are more Chinese than, than, you know, there are more communists than capitalists, so if half the world wins, we'll still have more communists and we'll build a communist world. And he would say these kind of things routinely, and, and once the Chinese got nuclear weapons, this became a real worry that this was a guy who was actively welcoming the prospect of a nuclear war. Um, so even he was deterred at the end of the day because every—you know people mistake the idea of rationality as being reasonableness. Rationality means you want to survive, uh, as self-preservation. But the early years of the Cold War, the 50s and 60s, were very, very nerve wracking and for any of you who lived through them, you remember the under-the-desk drills and all that because there was no contact between the, the the nuclear powers. And so you were very worried about what could escalate, what tripwires could happen. It was really after the 60s uh, that you began this kind of, this practice of arms control, uh, confidence-building measures, things that each side would do so that the other could know that there were no accidental launches, you know, all that happens in the second half, as it were, of the Cold War, which ends up actually being much more stable. Unfortunately, with North Korea, we would be in that first half um, you know, very worrying because you would have absolutely no contact. Again, all the more reason I feel that we have to explore the possibility that there is some way to communicate with this regime. I mean, I, I, I think that Tom's point is exactly right. You know, they may not be willing to go to zero, but you know, with, with the Iranians, we caught them at an earlier stage but they did go much further than frankly a lot of people predicted they would
2: yeah. and i will say you know i commend you the article that was in the atlantic it's in this month uh, by mark bowden which goes through the military options piece by piece and if you're asking yourself whether a preemptive strike or even some sort of you know high tech seal team 6 maneuver is is an is an attractive idea read this piece and it'll make a powerful case to you why we need to be thinking about other uh, other ideas, because uh, I don't know a single person in uniform or out of it who thinks that it's a good idea.
0: And I think, Evan, the Chinese have figured that out, too. Yeah. And it's, it's in that sense, I think, they don't take Trump's threats all that seriously.
2: We're going to open this up in, in just a second uh, to questions. Um, but before we do, if j- just very briefly, if, if you guys could sit down with the president, our president, uh, for. One piece of advice to give him, if you could tell him one thing on this subject, this puzzle of North Korea, what would you say? Liz, you go first. After,
4: after, <laughs> after, I, after I said stop tweeting, um, I, I guess I, I would say, you know, sit down um, and have a set of conversations with uh, Japan, uh, Korea, and China. Uh, you know, have four, and maybe Russia, maybe five party talks, because the Russians have actually, oddly enough, uh, as when the chinese seem to be more willing uh, on the sanction front the russians kind of stepped up and said uh, they would be more supportive of north korea so it looks like we're going to have to bring them back into the into the framework as well uh, but i think we we need to have some get kind talking. of coor- get talking and have a coordinated strategy because we haven't had that
2: Yeah, and Uh, people forget, it's been 15 years since we had direct one-on-one talks with North Korea of any kind. But but I'm saying before we sit down with North Korea, I'm saying just even five five
4: party talks uh, at this point. And I would say, you know, one of the interesting things I I think I read uh, was that the administration seems also to be reaching out to Europe and and other places to to bring them into this uh, discussion as well, because... Now you're beginning to see the Europeans uh, saying that actually North Korea is posing a threat to the entire world. It's not just about South Korea, Japan, not the United States, China, etc., but this is becoming uh, a problem for the world. So I think that's another thing we haven't really talked about is, you know, North Korea has, I guess there are about 27, 30 uh, foreign embassies in North Korea. There are a lot of other countries that in one way or another can engage with North Korea so it's not all about the five Uh, we are the most important but but you know Mongolia's had various uh, engagements Uh, Sweden you know not terribly successful recently but there might be a way to tap into some of these other countries that have a presence uh, in North Korea uh, to have them bring some engagement and pressure to bear
0: I would um, uh, really follow what President Obama did with Iran that uh, Freed alluded to, which is that um, we had one year of secret talks with the Iranians in Oman, um, Jake Sullivan and Bill Burns, just to see whether there was a possibility of a deal. And they were hard at first and whatnot. Um, I, I think you're always better off talking. And I would approach the North Koreans through whatever avenues we have, through the Chinese or through South Korea or whatever avenues we have, and say, let's meet on a on a distant island and,
2: um, and let's resume the dialogue. See where it goes. And there was, there was actually a, a, an instinct towards that at the very beginning of this yeah. administration before Kim, Kim Jong-nam was killed at the airport. Yeah. There was a desire to try to get Reserve. something going on. Remember? Yeah, President exactly. So they're, and, they're, and actually, and they were moving in that yeah. direction. Right. So, I'd go back um, you know, we talk about the idea that only Nixon could go to China. The idea that only Trump yeah. could go to Pyongyang is not as wild as it sounds.
3: Yeah. I would, I, would, I would do exactly what, what Tom suggested. I think that the mistake we sometimes make is um, we, we, don't, we, we forget that talking is not the concession. The concession is the concession. In other words, the, the, the North Koreans want a series of things, as I say, the end of the war, hostilities, recognition, diplomatic exchange. Those are the concessions. But talking to them to figure out whether, what would they give? in return to get those concessions is not a concession. We have wound ourselves up in a strange place, as with Iran, where talking was the concession. And so we would not be willing to talk to them until they surrendered. And it turned out countries are very stubborn. They just won't do that. So I would say that's, you know, that's, and frankly, that might appeal to to Trump as a negotiator. The only thing I would plead with him is, to Tom's initial joke, please don't do this yourself this is, this is the world's most complicated right, subject yeah. start at a very low yeah. level where there's plausible deniability move up you know figure out whether there's... Right. Uh, the, you know that, that, that prospect frankly for any president would be would be nerve-wracking because you never want that should be the culmination of a long process
2: not the beginning of one So we have a, a short window for questions We'll start right over there.
4: Hi uh, the Korean
2: dynasty has
0: made a very effective practice of seeming to be irrational, but I would accept your point that they are ultimately rational. China, I agree with value, value stability, but my question is now you have somebody in the White House to whom China at least can say, we think we have their number, but what do you think Trump's volatility, how do you think that plays in Pyongyang? You know, I, I would just say, I, I, I think the leader in Pyongyang has, has read um, Bowden's article in the Atlantic. Um, You know, that they they understand that they've created a situation where, very deliberately and strategically, where nobody really has a military option that doesn't result in millions of casualties, including 20,000 U.S. troops. And I think they've also, because they're right next door, have read the situation in South Korea, that the South Koreans do not want a war. Um, it happened by coincidence. Uh, I got to South Korea uh, late at night. I woke up the next morning. I heard one of those CNN alerts on my phone. I went over to it I was getting dressed and North Korea just launched a missile attack, a missile uh, test, you know? Um, and I was waiting for the sirens to go off. I'd been in Israel for the Hamas ones, you know, so go to the shelter, you know. Um, maybe it's uh, you, Tom. Yeah, that's just... right. No. But uh, not only that, you boy, the buffet at breakfast was as crowded <laughs> as ever. Stock market didn't move. Um, there, there, you've got to see it from there, there and the North understands that, yeah. uh, so I think they understand those two extremes, that the South doesn't want a war, and nobody has got a good military I'll outfit. tell
2: you something else, too. I've been in touch with some of the folks who follow North Korean official media, particularly the domestic media, very closely, and... What they say is that North Korea is listening very closely to what the president says and doesn't say. So they've taken note of the fact that he has said, you know, some sort of bellicose things about how North Korea will never achieve its objective of an ex-nuclear test. But he has not actually gone after Kim Jong-un personally. What he said is... he said He's he's a smart cookie, which sent the translators on the North Korean side into a a complex, (laughs) into a huddle. But they have noted that. They have noted that. And if you look at North Korean media, in fact, they have made a point of not going after Trump personally either. So what the They're president says matters. Yeah. Um, Someone over there, I think. Uh, yeah, right over there. Thanks. I just got back from North Korea last night after spending a month there, and I was just wanted to ask no. if... Um,
0: Come on up. Know, no, I'm no, sure. No, no, no. sure. Um, I wanted to ask if you um, had thought about engaging the North Korean people, the 25 million, um, in a changing from the inside out rather than trying to change from the
4: outside
2: in like we've been trying to do with the government?
4: I think actually um, Google at one point was working with the um, Obama administration uh, to try to do that somehow, right, to try to get information into North Korea. Uh, And the North Koreans uh, have had access more than we know and think uh, to South Korean TV, to some Chinese TV, so it's you know, still they have to you know, cover it up at night so that the lights aren't on in their homes and you know, the government can't see in and nobody reports them and stuff. But I think that we might be surprised, particularly in Seoul, uh, at the number of people who have a better sense of the outside world uh, than we uh, probably uh, understand. I don't know whether this administration uh, has thought about continuing to try to do that work that the Obama administration started.
2: Uh, do we have a microphone And that? T- oh, we have a microphone right here. Let's go right there, please. Thanks. Do you think that the Sony Pictures hack provides any insight
4: into how Kim Jong-un might respond if President Trump does
2: have some personality attacks on Kim Jong-un himself? Is the cyber threat from North Korea something we need to be thinking about? Is that a big piece of the puzzle, or was that a one-off?
0: Well, we did turn all the lights off there one day um, in the wake of that. So I think they've got to be a little more afraid of our cyber capabilities, <laughs> I would suggest, than we would be of theirs. Yeah, no, but we, I think it is a yeah. serious, serious yeah, issue, I right? They're, they're developing
4: saying, their capabilities. Yeah. They hack banks. They've been hacking yeah. other countries' banks. Yeah. Um, and and I think some those cyber hackers are located in China, <laughs> which and might be discuss, another something yeah. the Chinese could help uh, with is you know ousting those guys, taking care of them.
0: Our firm looked at the last three treaties that the U.S. had with North Korea a few years ago. And we came to the conclusion that the U.S. had brooched all three of them. It had been our failure. We were the parties that had not kept the terms. And I, I asked Madeleine Albright that question. And she said, yes, that's correct. And so my question for you is, is do you know, are you aware of that? Is that your opinion? And is it possible that the U.S. has actually put ourselves into
4: this situation?
3: Um, I think that that's, that that's an exaggeration. I think that the way I would put it is both sides did not deliver, uh, and it was kind of roughly simultaneous, and so it's very difficult to tell who was who to blame. But I think it would be fair to say, uh, partly because of what, what Tom says, that the United States has been very unwilling to give concessions that cannot then be retracted in the hope that the North Koreans will make them or. You know, unsure whether or not they were cheating. If you remember, in the middle of, the, you know, after the the end of the Clinton years, we found that they were cheating, that they had another reactor, and so that soured relations a lot. So there's a huge amount of mistrust. But I think it's certainly fair to say that they expected um, a certain kinds of aid that they were promised in the in the deals that they, that we never provided them with. Um, and that's you know, again, part of the problem here is there's so little trust on on either side that you'd have to proceed very carefully and cautiously and incrementally in a way that both sides could feel that there were kind of an escalating set of confidence-building measures.
2: Hi. Uh, in the last uh, 60 years of the evolution of North Korea, what were sort of the key inflection points where, you know, with hindsight, we might have done something differently to not wind up in this place? <laughs>
4: I'm the wrong well, person
2: for that. I mean, it's hard to say, though, I, there, you know, we have come close. There was the agreed framework was yep. the best deal we ever had. That was 1998, 1999. Um, if you talk to the people who were involved in that deal, Bob Gallucci, um, great ambassador, You know what they tell you is that that was the triumph of talking. You know, And that's one of the things I think that you hear coming across all these comments tonight is we are putting ourselves at a disadvantage when we are not sitting at the table. And the hard part, in some sense, is the accommodation that we have to make to our own resistance to the idea that we're rewarding them, you know, that by sitting down that we're somehow uh, folding up. And that's not the case. What we're doing is creating ourselves a, the opportunity to be able to- To remind
3: you what happened there. So after, after that, those, those talks, the Bush administration comes in. Colin Powell makes a statement saying, on North Korea, we are going to take up the very promising leads that we have been provided by the Clinton administration. The White House, essentially Dick Cheney, Publicly contradicts and reprimands Colin Powell for doing that and says no We are not going to reward this evil regime. The only you know, the only but but something like the only thing we can do with North Korea is Regime change and that kills it. But then then, to be fair They had been cheating before but that really shut down that one possibility
2: that existed right there, please
1: so some say that uh, Iran and North Korea see what happened to Ukraine, who gave up their nuclear arsenal for a guarantee of sovereign integrity, so that they would never give it up because they see what happens.
2: And they say as much. If you follow the talks they had in Oslo, they will say to your face, we do not want to be Gaddafi. Um, So in a sense, are they saying the truth? Do you think they would not give them up? Or is that a bargaining technique?
4: I don't think they'd give them up. Yeah, I, don't, I, I don't see why they okay. had a period of time when you know China was engaging them, South Korea was engaging them. They had all the opportunities for economic reform, all everything that we would be thinking about right now was sitting right there for them, and yet they didn't stop developing their nuclear capability. So I, I don't, I don't you see. Did, they feel they have
0: a formula, and yeah. it's worked for them for three generations. Right. And, the idea that they'd walk away from it seems unlikely to me. And if by the you,
3: way, just yeah. one thought on that, the decapitation idea that right. Tom raised, which, which is very, you know, kind of people talk about. I actually think that the military understands that the regime works because they have this incredibly repressive military dictatorship topped with this bizarre cult of personality ideology, you know, that this, this family came from the mountains somewhere and has mystical powers. I mean, some of the stuff in that movie... Uh, what was it? The Sony movie that was,
2: you know. Oh, the interview. The, yeah,
3: the interview. Yeah. It's true that there is a mythology. You know, if we want to get graphic about it, there's a mythology that the Kim family does not have to, you know, um, go Believe to the it bathroom. Itself. You know, yeah. it, it does not defecate. Mm-hmm. That it's, you know, it's so pure, and it's that kind of, and and you know, there is this bizarre cult of personality, and we laugh. But as I say, they've been around for three generations.
2: My grandmother said never pass up an opportunity to go to the bathroom, so I don't think the Kim family has that right there. This is our last question, folks.
3: My
4: question, if it were any other president, I probably wouldn't have this question, but given that I really, when Fareed started his talk about dialogue, really seriously, any of the four of you, do you really think there's any semblance of an understanding of dialogue that Trump has? No, I think but that's why Fareed said it would have to start at a different level and probably have to end at a different level, too, (laughs) like with Secretary Mattis, maybe. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I, I don't think so. I mean, you can look, look at his initial press statement with President Moon today, where all he could say was, we're renegotiating, you know, the Korea Free Trade Agreement. He has no... A diplomatic sensibility as no, far as I can tell.
2: No U.S. president has ever met a leader of North Korea so there's no expectation that they would. I don't think that would be one of the things that, that would be required. Folks, we are out of time. Thank you very much for coming.
1: Elizabeth Economy studies China's relationship with North Korea. She's with the Council on Foreign Relations. Thomas Friedman began writing about North Korea in the 1990s. He's a columnist for the New York Times. Farid Zakaria is a contributing editor at The Atlantic and a best-selling author. Evan Osnos covered China for The New Yorker. He's the author of Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June 2017. Coming up on Aspen Ideas to Go later this week, a conversation about what journalists have learned from listening to American voices.
4: We live in Um, alternative reality silos, and the intensity of political tribalism continues to tick up.
1: Charles Sykes, Melissa Block, James Fallows, and Joshua Johnson discuss their observations from thousands of conversations with people around the country. Is the U.S. as deeply and hopelessly divided as we think? The episode drops later this week. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.